3: They made a movie about this place, Notting Hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course they did. What's that? I like that actor, the the blonde guy. What's his name? Rice. He's in the Oasis video. Uh, Reese a fan. Yeah, Reese. Yeah, he's cool. Have you seen that Oasis video that he's in the? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Importance of being. Uh, he you know, plays Howard Marks as well, I think, in the film about him.
3: Right, right. Yeah, he's yeah. A, no, he's he's a a yeah, yeah, yeah. He's power a great actor. actor. Yeah, it's good. So, it's what's good. going on with you? Well, plenty of things. I just came from uh, an interesting uh, interview in a little rehearsal place in Shepherds Bush. And uh, some people thought it was all about kind of it being like a drum tutorial masterclass, but it was really just kind of a hangout with a drum set there. So I I banged on the drums a little bit in between talking and kind of emphasize a joke or something, you know, like, you know, and... uh, Having a lovely time um, here.
0: You have got we a do- bit of a London residency going on at the moment around the album release, right? You got a pop up yeah. shop and
3: yeah, we um doing the Roundhouse on uh, Wednesday. I guess
0: that I was sold last out night. really quickly. Such an iconic venue, isn't it?
3: Yeah, you know we played there, I guess once or twice. Interesting gig at that the Roundhouse was that, uh, you know, Flaming Groovies, Ramones, Stranglers. Because I was in a band called Magic Christian. With uh, Cyril Jordan for a while, the guitarist, songwriter, Flaming groovies. groovies. Yep. And, uh, you know, he, he really kind of got hoodwinked, shall we say, about having the Ramones. He didn't really know what to expect. And that's, uh, uh, you know, obviously that's very legendary Ramones gig where they basically yep. took over London after that. And so, uh, kind of overshadowed the Flaming Groovies a little bit, who are an amazing band as well. Now hey, they're man, back yeah. together, so it's good. Um, yeah, we just came from Berlin. And I think we kind of just dove into this gig after coming from Australia without really kind of, you know, having a a day of like rehearsing or anything. And I I think it worked out for the best because it was kind of very casual, although it was being streamed and it's also being edited into a television show. And we basically just did this show that we had been doing in Australia. The club was uh, pretty... uh, reminiscent of back in the day, kind of deconstructed, and smaller stage, and uh, about 500 people. It's was a free gig, and uh, it went really, really well, and it was interesting watching the stream uh, back, because it's still up for, like, I think a month before they take it down and make it. Right. Th- and they had a lot of shots of the audience, and it, it was a very interesting-looking audience, because it was in Berlin, so there was a lot of kind of... Let's say artsy type people, I don't yeah. want to say kooks, you know, <laughs> artists yeah. and but they were really the directors was focusing in more than just for a second on people's faces. they were like people like crying. Wow. And like and like good really though, right? uh, reacting to the songs in a real positive way. And as as a performer, especially with the drums, you don't really get to see that particularly you know, to that extent. I mean, you could tell if the oh, gig's going down good or not, but you don't get this like, one-on-one like, emotional reaction to a song, like we play a song and people were like, you know, like the looks on their faces. So it was really uh, fulfilling and rewarding from my point of view. I, mean, it was, I really liked that they focused on the audience quite a bit. So um, we did that gig and then we were gigging in Australia and we virtually just came from Australia after about three or four days off. I went to a party for Seymour Stein, the president of Steyer, for his nice. 75th birthday on the Friday. I got back, and uh, Henry Rollins was there, Moby, and uh, Mandy Stein, uh, Seymour's daughter, threw the party for him. It was a surprise party. I was a little worried. You're 75. Is the guy's going to have a heart attack on him. <laughs> but it, actually, it was fun. And then uh, I have a friend called Tom Kenny, who's the voice of, I don't know if you have any kids, but probably anyway, you know Spongebob is, right? Right,
0: yeah, yeah, He's yeah. He's the
3: voice of course. Spongebob. He's the most avid music, roots music fan. I'm talking about deep, like doo-wop, fifties, soul, uh, you know, like there was this big gig in Brooklyn recently that he flew in to see with all these, uh, I'm at, at a bit of a loss to remember uh, which people, but like a lot of like really well-known, but like one-off like black artists and different things from back in the day. And he flew in for that, but he has a band, 12 piece band. His name is tom kinney and so i went to his gig in a in a pub on saturday and, and sat in and played like a double shot of my baby's love nice and,
0: uh, otis swinging Redding's, medallions right swinging medallions yeah, yeah.
3: otis redding song I can't even, um papa do like that new orleans thing yeah and you know totally unrehearsed just sat in and that was really fun so um you know things are all good in the hood at the moment so but I mean, i'm enjoying being uh this hotel is a little bit more boutique-y and a little bit more like comfortable in a sort of. Uh, I guess it's in a kind of everything is about authenticity nowadays and bespoke and uh, like authenticity is the new luxury. Somebody said so. It, it's a it's a bit more like that and uh, you I get stuff
0: like that case.
3: Yeah, and I'm really familiar, obviously, with. with uh, you know, uh, Kensington Church Street was one of my main arteries, obviously, because we used to stay actually at the Royal Garden Hotel forever, and which is a bit more, let's say, posh than this place. But this is like more homey. But, uh, you know, and going to Portobello Road, I've done that plenty of times, to the rough trade and all that. But to actually now, like I went out this morning for a run and that and, uh, you know, getting deeper into the neighborhood, it was kind of nice. And, but the only problem was there's a gym that this hotel's affiliated with I went out for a run, which I kind of do most mornings. Um, then I go to where the gym is, there's about a half a dozen or so people outside with their arms folded in like uh, you know running gear. And I'm like, what's going on?" They go, "Oh, they can't find the key to open up the gym, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> funny, but things like that make uh, life interesting because I think it 's like in a disused like i don 't know what it was, a stable or who knows what it was, so it 's just a building on the end of a road, uh, Moscow place or moscow terrace or something anyway that was kind of funny so what's happening with you
0: i am kind of trying to just sort of at the moment without flipping it and going too sad there's been a lot of death in my family recently mm. so i'm trying to just be there for my parents both of them in the last 10 months have lost their sister and mum individually oh, so it's wow. been a really rough time for them but i guess through things like that you appreciate life and you learn to grow closer as a family, don't you? And-
3: For sure, you know what, I mean, any time a, a close family member dies, a part of you dies. Yeah. And especially, you're saying their parents have passed, so then they are become the elders in a lot of ways, and it's part of you, like I said, it's part of the life transition. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you realize you're, I don't want to be more like, I'm not trying to be funny. You're the next in line. But you're the next in line in many ways. Yeah. So you you kind of take that into account once uh, something as significant as that happens in your life. Both my parents are are gone. And uh, my mom died when I was uh, 17 or so. I have no idea how I got into college because my last two years of like what they call high school in the States was just dealing with trying to care for her and, you know, just being involved in this whole cancer death thing and i really feel for most of my people my age now that had lucky enough to have their parents live that you know a lot of them probably most people are going through similar thing that your parents just went through for sure and i really feel i have the empathy because i experienced it Uh, how did
0: that affect you at such a young age because
3: oh it definitely affected me like i said i was just in a daze i mean music was like like you were saying like you appreciate other things. I mean, I always was in bands and that whole camaraderie uh, and brotherhood, let's say, uh, to get all Springsteen on us here, uh, of a band and the friendship that's involved and the interaction is definitely something that is very fulfilling and very uh, positive and, and uh, rewarding. Uh, you know, just playing music in itself is like a great therapy. So um, I would probably be like a, like an axe murderer or
0: something if I didn't play music only kidding kids so it's kind of cliched but it sort of in many ways did save your life
3: yeah yeah I mean uh, my whole sort of social life when I was a kid was being in bands I had, I had one band uh, my first two years of, of high school and, uh, and I had another band the last two years of high school and then right out of high school I had one sort of glam rock band right before I met Chris and Debbie and we started Blondie you know I was about 18 years old so uh, music. So my my dad used to drive the van for us back in the day, and um,
0: you know and take you to all the shows out. when you're starting out. What's that? And take you to all the shows. Yeah, when I used you're to drive out. the band. The, wow.
3: One of the one of the chaps, with the keyboard players, his his parents owned a restaurant. They had like a catering van that we would use for the for the gigs. Uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. My, my parents were very supportive of me. You know, I think when you have anything that your kid is into, as long as it's uh, healthy, healthy. You got to support it because that's really what the joy de vie is about, you know. Like that lust for life is about being passionate about something. Unfortunately for my parents, well, not really. My dad was a drummer as well, so I mean, I chose the drums. But I'm left-handed, so I had a very difficult time trying to learn the guitar when I was a kid. I would kind of look at chord books in a mirror to get the reverse thing, and it was it was more difficult. Has no and, idea, Lizzie.
1: <laughs> <is he? laughs> yeah,
3: when everybody's starting out and they're looking at your your chord from chord formations, or you're holding the guitar in the opposite direction, it's kind of confusing. So uh, I, I took to the drums. I'm, I'm I'm left-handed, but I play the drums right-handed, which is uh, kind of an attribute in a way because it makes you kind of ambidextrous, like a Billy Cobham, for instance. Mm-hmm. But it also like you know Ringo, Dino Danelli, uh, same thing. That you, but you kind of lead with your left hand, and and some of the like that kind of Ringo fills of like. Th- Like suitcases falling downstairs, kind of ramshackle, crash
0: and roll kind of stuff. Yes,
3: distinctive because a lot of times you lead with your left hand.
0: So he was a drum hero to you, was he? I mean, obviously the Beatles were, you know, the band weren't they that kicked open the gates and introduced youth culture.
3: But prior to that, for me, it was the the band, The Four Seasons. Right. That was the whole thing in America was The Four
0: Seasons. Frankie valley
3: yeah, it was but they had like you know these this we used to cover a song called Big Man in Town. Believe it or not, that Debbie would sing singing Big Man in Town, which is a real interesting thing. When because we used to do like songs by the Doors or, you know, or we'd do like a Johnny Thunder song or New York Doll song. and It's interesting having her take on the persona basically of the of the guy singer because she doesn't like she doesn't change he to she or she to he and blah. She just kind of sings it, so it's pretty interesting her singing I'll be a big man in town, but the. Uh, I was saying in the States, because the Four Seasons were, and also being from the East Coast and New Jersey and all, they were kind of like role models in a way, and the records were great. And so, but when the Beatles came out, you know, it kind of like, was like this whole, like, Four Seasons versus Beatles. And of course, I immediately took to the Beatles, but there were people in my school that were Four Seasons and we would kind of, but they, had, they made a lot of great records of Four Seasons. and. The interesting thing for me and people of my generation, the Beatles on that Sullivan show, yeah. it was a phenomena that didn't exist before and they really did seem like they came from another planet, like literally. The look, the style, the sound, and also them basically you know, re-upping regen- re- uh, American music, giving it back in a different way. They seemed like not of this world. But it's interesting because, you know, I haven't spent so much time in England, and I was here when the anniversary of Ed Sullivan, their appearance, and for many reasons, it just wasn't a big deal. They were just like the lads from up north, you know, they weren't like, you could see their whole... They weren't really rock stars. Their whole sort of boy next door thing existed, I think, much more so in the UK, because they were average lads, you know, in a lot of ways, exceptionally talented and all that, but... Um, but in the States, yeah. I mean, that kicked it off. Like, And then somebody once said, then when the Rolling Stones came, everyone kind of got the idea that anybody could do it, kind of like punk rock, because they weren't as polished, let's say, as the Beatles were. The Beatles were, you know, really fully...
0: The full package, right, from the formed, look to the sound. Said, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: you know. Yeah, so the Beatles, you know, but I mean, know all that. I mean, I just had drinks over Christmas with Mick Avery, one of my favorites, from the Kinks, the drummer. And we, we toured with the Kinks in... Uh, Seventy-eight, right when parallel lines came out we did a six-week tour with the kinks but was prior to the success of um of heart of glass heart of glass yeah and the interesting thing was then we went over to holland right after that and we did this pink pop festival and the jam were on that and the kinks but guess who was headlining blondie because it was holland and we already had like three big hits I remember it was like with Bruce Fox and Paul Well, they were like, Oh, we wish we could meet like Ray Davis, we wish we could meet the kinks, but I had just spent six weeks with them, drinking with them, et cetera, et cetera. Dressing room, okay, come on in guys, open the door, you know, there's there's like rain is, you know, tidy whiteys, whatever you call them. <laughs> they all sweat, they just finished the show. I'm like, hey, this is Paul and, and Bruce here. Yeah, go like, oh, come on, in. you know. Cause it was like we had developed a friendship that actually when I see Dave or Ray or Mick, like I said, there is a connection from back in the day and it was really interesting because we were just on the cusp of this, unbeknownst to us, this is success in the United States with Heart of Glass, which everyone always says about that song, oh, you guys, you know, you sold out, you knew it was going to be this big. I go, listen, back in the day, right? I mean, I know you know this, Matt. Well, vinyl, when you went to a programmer, you know, that, 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 that we're going to put the most uh, appealing tracks, going to be first, second, or third. Right, because by that time the programmer puts listens to each one for ten seconds. Okay, that one's okay. Oh, that. If he doesn't like it by the third one, they're gonna throw the record out the window. You know, Heart of Glass is like on the B side of the album, like number eight or something. So we thought we were experimenting because of the craft work, who we loved, and uh, you know the sequencing, which we did manually. There was no MIDI. There was no digital. You know, it was all analog sense and all that. And, uh, you know, I did a couple of records with Eurythmics, and the first one I did was one called In the Garden, the Eurythmics record that didn't sell, the first one. And uh, we did it in Germany. I'm on about three quarters of the album, and uh, Connie Plank was the producer who produced Kraftwerk and and, Cannes. Wow. And when I went, I was, we went to, uh, I was living in London at the time. I had met Annie Lennox at a club called Planets in Burlington Arcade. That was funny in itself because uh, I'm like at the bar, actually that night, I know it's a legendary place, Boy George was the DJ. And that night, it was like, Lemmy was there on the-, the 100 on the, on the, Club. What's that? Was it the 100 Club? No, or it was the called Rock? The, Planet. it was the Planet. a Planets. The Planets. It was a club, it wasn't a music club. Right. It was in Burlington Arcade, it was like a nightclub. Like club. a bar, yeah. Yeah, so like Lemmy's on the like fruit machine, Phil uh, Lennett's Phil hanging out with Lemmy, Michael Jackson seriously is sitting in a chair with a band-aid over his nose from probably a, a nose uh, you know, plastic surgery, and he's walking around saying he's trying to copy Adam Ant. And all of a sudden, uh, this woman, blonde, attractive blonde, comes towards me and it's Annie, and we went around her place for uh, Sunday Roast, I think it might have been Nut Roast though, with, uh, with Dave. And one thing led to another. I'm on a plane going to uh, Neun- to Cologne, to the studio Neunkirchen, in Neunkersen. And the uh, first thing Connie Plank says to me is he loves Heart of Glass and he sees that whole connection with craftwork and all. I was like, wow. Because most people were saying it's like some you know weird crappy disco song and all that. But anyway, what were we talking about?
0: Life, the road. Yeah.
3: You ever listen to... WTF over here? Yeah, about- I love it. Yeah, that was the Mark reason why I
0: started this whole podcast. Oh, like, that's interesting. A big inspiration.
3: Oh, that's funny, huh? This, I, I this- love
0: his tactic and his way in. Like, it's a totally unique approach to interviewing, and it's not it something is. you would hear really anywhere else. Yeah. It was a big game-changer for me hearing it. I was like, wow, this guy's just, he's going in. Well, that's the freedom <laughs> of
3: a podcast. Yeah, right? I mean, it's established now. I mean, it's really a great new medium in general, you know? I mean, that's the thing I'd always thought about the Internet in itself because I have, I play with a lot of different bands. I have about three or four other bands when I'm not doing Blondie, because I'm as a drummer, I like to always be playing. Well, I've
0: been looking through your credentials in the lead-up to this chat, oh. and it's a long list. You know, yeah, everyone from Iggy Pop to Dylan, right? Did yeah, the biggies,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying, I, I wish I would have went. I should have went. I'm so tired when I got here. I should have went over to the Palladium and banged on the backstage door last night. I know he's here for two or three days. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, Charlie Sexton is a friend of mine who plays guitar, and, and I'm, I'm actually, I've, I've worked with Bob, but I mean, it's Dylan, it's a very tight situation, but I think if I would have went over there between the whole being in London and all, I think I could have just gotten in, but I was real tired. I tried to go to my favorite Indian restaurant last night in, on Prince's Gate, and it was so crowded. And I was on my own, so they said come back in about an hour. I did came back in an hour, it was it was twice as crowded, so I never got really to eat. And I thought I'll eat and then kind of wander into Leicester Square or something, but it didn't work out. But um, I was just going to say, but at the inception of the internet being so commonplace, I always thought it's so cool. Like you could be playing in a, a bar or a little club to like, you know, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, but somebody's filming, you know, because I, I never objected to uh, people recording a performance or music uh, I mean now of, of course you, it's, it's basically unpreventable yeah I did go to see the Stones on Hollywood Boulevard and they had a sign about a block plus away if you have your phone go back to your car now because you're not getting in uh, but I could see how they could kind of make that work because people are going holy shit the Stones are playing in this little theater I gotta and everyone my in the
0: crowd would just yeah. be like that yeah. But, and well, it does ruin that, the experience even, a little yeah. bit I think as a, oh, as, as a gig goer if you're behind a tall guy as well, and you're having to watch the show through their phone, yeah, yeah, no.
3: It's, I read a thing about there's this dentist in the states. He doesn't give a shit who's playing. He wants to get tickets in the first row, and his hobby is with his phone. I mean, that's ridiculous.
0: I was in the Golden Circle for Black Sabbath's last show in Birmingham. Oh, okay. I know somebody that flew
3: over. Full, full of for that. people. Big Shepherd Ferry flew over for that.
0: Yeah, he was around. Yeah,
3: because yeah, I was. In, he's a friend of ours. He's done the, the artwork for our new album, the Pollinator album. But yeah, he. He, I had talked to him and he said, oh, I'm leaving to see, anyway, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I just had literally some guy in front of me like that for the entire show, just filming it.
3: The jazz a music- nightmare. the jazz musicians really resent it because that's kind of like part of their whole deal. And comedians, forget it. Yeah. You can't workshop anything. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing with CBGBs. it was like a workshop. You could, like, screw up. I mean, we were, like, horrible, you know, but we would just keep going. And, you know, nowadays... I mean, the comedians, there's the guy from Seinfeld, right? He, the, the, which guy? Uh, Rich, Michael Richards. He just threw some racial slur out in the course of his uh, stand-up, and it went viral, viral. And all of a sudden, it ended his career. Yeah. I mean, and as, forget if, like, Lenny Bruce was around now or something, right? But what I was going to say was, the cool thing about it for me is, like, somebody could be, you know, filming it on their phone, not filming it, recording it on their phone, And then, uh, you know, it goes on the net and then like, you know, it's worldwide, which I think is kind of brilliant in a way if you're trying to get your music out there. And then you look about, look, look, think about like the Grateful Dead. I mean, their whole business plan was really overtaken by the Ramones in a way, you know, never really sold records. I mean, of course they sold records, never had hit like Blondie. I mean, we had four number ones in the United States. It's very hard to believe that because there's like, like things like the Beach Boys never had four number ones. It's crazy. And yet, what were the four? Uh, well, Heart interesting, Glass. Heart of Glass, Call Me, Rapture, and Titus High. Which is interesting because there are Was well, all... Atomic not number one? I thought that was... Atomic was never right. even a single in right. the States. Wow. It was That's... over here, though, right? Oh, no, Atomic was huge. Yeah. That's the interesting thing about uh, the international aspect of Blondie in general and, and where the songs were hits and where, where the songs weren't hits. The thing in the States is funny because, as far as I'm concerned, those four four songs are all one-offs, if, the, if you think about... What most people think, well, I don't know what people think Blondie. Is Blondie some girl, some woman? Is Blondie a band? Is it like Jethro Tull? Is it, is it like a pop band? Is it a punk band? Is it a, is it a, a disco band? It's very interesting that we cross, we blur all those lines, and that's a big, big part of our success. I mean, they're simulating all these different things. Ramones were great, but they had really one sound one you know, feeling, in a lot right? of ways. Yeah. Punk rock was great, but it really meant really only one thing at the end of the day. But now everyone, of course, takes it back and goes, punk rock is an attitude. It's a lifestyle. So um, getting back to the number ones, you had of uh, Glass was the first one. Then there was Call Me, which we recorded like in one afternoon with Giorgio Moroder. He had written the music, uh, forgot about it. I came back from a tour, I got in the car, turned the radio on, I heard the song, it sounded familiar, and it was Call Me. And that was like our biggest, that was the biggest record of 1980 in the States. And then we had Rapture, and we. I think maybe first was Titus High and then Rapture, so we had like a, fake, like a faux reggae song, a faux rap song. Uh, call Me is like a, a rock, dance rock song, I would call it. But none of them are like Picture This or Dineen Dineen or In the Flesh or
0: Hanging on the Telephone. Hanging on the Telephone
3: yeah. or the, especially the stuff that really brought us the big success over here. Um, yeah, that's So an interesting it's interesting. Point. Like, we're almost like a cult band in the States still, and, but like, how can a cult band have had four number one records? It's, it's a really weird phenomenon.
0: So you think if you lined up 10 people from different parts of the world, different ages, and sort of said, explain Blondie, what does Blondie mean to you, they'd all have completely different answers probably. There's properly.
3: a good chance of that. There is a good chance of that. Of course, most people think nowadays or whatever think Blondie is Debbie, and it's something that, uh, you know, I have to live with. And, uh, <laughs> it's not that difficult in the end of the day.
0: How is it being in a band with a couple such as those two? And
3: Well, now, that's an interesting
0: thing if that you... If you can talk about that.
3: that. Oh, well, the, the whole chemistry... Uh, Getting back to my dad, my dad passed right when we were getting back together. And it was really kind of gratifying for me for him to know that because obviously we had all the success. Although I went on and did a lot of great things and, you know, uh, my dad came to the Eurythmic shows that we did in New York. He like, like Mick Jagger's hanging out talking to my dad and, you know, things like that. But the Blondie thing was special, obviously. And I was a kid, you know. I mean, we broke up, I think I was, we stopped playing, I think I was like 24 after all that success. So um, I would have never thought off the top of my head that Debbie and Chris and Jimmy Destry would be at my dad's funeral and at the, at the graveyard with me. And they were, and uh, getting, uh, you know, and uh, that was really the beginning. And, uh, and in fact, my dad was very ill. And I was like, "What the fuck am I going to do? I can't do this blondie thing. I got to. I'm an only child as well, so I'm like, I got to take care of my dad. There's no way I'm going to be able to go on tour. I'm just going to have to say I can't do it." So, that was really uh, meant a lot to me that they were there for that. And then Jimmy Destri, for various reasons, is not long, no longer uh, a long Three other people, my mate Gary Valentine left a long time ago. I went to school with him. And Frank Infante, the guitarist, was my friend as a teenager. He was the, the best guitar player in town. He got into the band via me. Nigel Harrison, uh, my friend Sable Starr, who you may have heard of out there, uh, old girlfriend of mine, along with many other uh, people that she uh, became. Uh, romantic with I suppose but um, she recommended Nigel and um, but when we got back together in uh, late 98 uh, Jimmy was involved the other two weren't we went through a lot of acrimony business-wise with them we the company's never disbanded and they still participate to this day in the old companies and the band never really broke up technically because we never disbanded our the companies like Blondie Inc. and a couple other company, subsidiary companies. So the, the, we never and we never announced that we would split up. It just kind of ended. And people and I started playing with your rhythmics and people were looking at me like, how did you do that? Like now you like i got number one with Sweet Dreams. You're on tour in England. How did that happen? But um, the point I'm trying to make is when it came to fruition that Jimmy Destry would no longer be involved in the band, which he does is not in any way, shape or form other than the old entities. Getting technical here, but um, I came to them and I said, you know what's going to happen now? Debbie's like, "Well, I don't always agree with Chris. I'm like, Debbie, you know, you gotta be fucking kidding me. I go, it's fine. I get it. But I go, it's like a fucking love triangle. And that's kind of what it's like. But we are, we, as crazy and corny as it sounds, we are kind of family and a lot of things have happened for the positive that have made our lives better in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, 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 the genesis of the band is when I joined. Um, I joined the band. They had another drummer who left and they had a bass player called Fred Smith, who was the, was the ba- bass, became the bass player in television, television. yeah. First gigs I did with Fred at CBGB, Tom Verlaine and Patty Smith were in the audience. It's been well documented. Fred came to us, because you do two shows a night, he came to Chris and Debbie, I barely knew Fred, said he was leaving to join television. So Fred leaves, I get my schoolmate Gary Valentine, who was a poet, played acoustic folk guitar a little, never played bass. We were living on the Lower East Side in a storefront, myself, uh, two other guys, and and Gary, one of which was this guy, Ronnie Toast, who just died, uh, who wrote the liner notes for our first album and co-wrote a couple of songs with, with Chris. One called Rifle Range, one called Cautious Lip. Um, for me, that's when the band started. Because it was like, they had the two of them, then you had the two of us. Gary wrote the music to the song X offender It's based on a real-life story that was involved. He did become... Uh,
0: Is that the first song on the first album?
3: Well, The Ex-Offender and In The Sun is a single. It was the first single. And uh, that's really for me when Blondie began. So um, it's been a long road, and, uh, you know, I feel like there were the two of them, and then I brought in Gary, and then we really started to have a band, and that's when we started gigging, and it was a trio with with a with Debbie, you know, three, three musicians and Debbie, which is, I think, where a lot of my fill in the gaps kind of style came from if you think about any not to compare but as silly as it may sound but whether it be The Who or Jimi Hendrix Experience or um, you know The Police uh, trios there's a lot of room for the drummer. power trios yeah I mean we're not a power no, trio but we were, but we're a trio yeah so there's a lot of room for the, for the drums and I think that's a lot of my and I, I play off I always listen to the singing so I play off of Debbie and and um so i don't know what the point i'm trying to make is but but as far as working with them it's great it's been great i'm really proud of this album pollinator it's uh something that i've been trying to get us to do for a long time uh get everybody in the studio the album prior to that i spent a week in a studio with the producer after songs had all been recorded to a click track and i basically didn't ever really had heard the songs and he's just all right play I played to, like, maybe 20, 25 songs, which is fine if you're doing a session, but this is, like, my band. And, uh, you know, I knew it wasn't going to work out to, like, where people really liked it. They want to hear us, the sound of the band. They want to hear the see the chemistry as it happens. And we did this one at the Magic Shop studio, which is no longer there, which, where David Bowie did his last two albums. And, you know, we began it in 19... 90, I keep saying 19... <laughs> In 2015, before Christmas, we started it, and we were so awestruck by the fact that this is where David Bowie had been doing his last, he'd been in seclusion recording his album. And you know, the, the one track had come out, the Black Star track had come out, and we're like, wow, that's like a really, you know, strange track. You know, of course with Bowie, anything could happen, but you know, we didn't really read into it the way everything became apparent because we took the Christmas break and then that's when David died and we were going back to the studio. And then, of course, it was a different kind of feeling. Cause like the studio there, they'd been like a champagne bottle from like the, um, the his birthday the year before, like, you know, David's birthday and he signed it and you could feel that his vibe. And the studios like a, almost a friends and family studio. It's kind of like books and records and posters. And it was a basement and first floor in Soho in New York. And so, and then when we went back, it was like, oh wow. Was there a
0: whole new mood?
3: New mood. And I think that this Pollinator record, uh, some of the tracks are informed by that. And also, interestingly enough, the second on it, the engineer, he was involved with all the David stuff. And of course, they had to all sign a non disclosure. But after the fact, didn't matter anymore. So he was able to, you know, then we started asking him what it was. Obviously, he was like, we were like in the middle of this. And, more than ironically, the studio was closing down as well. I don't know if you saw that Dave Grohl, not Sound City, he went on to do a a series of where he went to a city and featured a studio. Sonic Highways. Yeah. Well, that studio, The Magic Shop, is the one in New York. That's where we recorded this album. That's where Bowie did the two albums. You might know this already, but... um, So, yeah. And now the studio's gone. We were the first, last, I should say, last...
0: It was the last album made there, was it?
3: the last More full less. album
0: wow yeah that's quite yeah, a great part of history to be a part yeah. of
3: and also you know, the whole thing with David so it all kind of lined up in a really strange way and uh, also because of so many songs coming from outside writers on this album we have a, had a real I think objectivity to doing the songs a little different than the songs coming from within and uh, we're really proud of this album and I think it's really really good I think it's a really really good album and uh, after seeing we took a chance as we've done which which I bought heads on about a lot you know, I mean the set that we've been doing since we started up in Australia and all it's, it's like seven new songs and the album's not out of course you get people saying what about picture this what about we're not even doing our big comeback song Maria at the moment but the new songs have been going down great so um, yeah
1: and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Do you find yourself in the, the middle of the two of them? Do you find yourself having to almost play referee? And I'm not trying to look for like a, do you know what I mean? A scoop. Yeah. I just feel like you say that it's kind of like a love triangle. Do you think that part of your role in the band has been to be a mediator sometimes and help yeah. steer the ship, well, as it were?
3: Going back from- to what Debbie said of she not always agreeing with Chris. Yeah, I, I feel like that is. I-, I feel vindicated in a lot of ways, and not to be egotistical about it. But getting back to this Pollinator album, I've been saying for like years. I mean, the, the people just want to hear the sound of the band. They want to hear me playing the drums. They wanna hear Debbie sing. It doesn't really matter if it's like, has thousand programmed synthesizers and MIDI and this and that. That's really not what people care about. And, and if you look, what was the success? Yeah, we experimented with synthesizers and yeah, we used technology, fine, but not exclusively, which is the album before this, the Ghost Downloads was just completely computer generated and there was no give and take in the with the musicians or with the arranging or this album we we were in the studio arranging together you know et cetera et cetera so um, yeah you know and i'm always like i mean the classic thing i was like here's a good example we're in the studio getting ready for australia i'm like chris we should do a song in the flesh ah nobody cares about that song Chris. Because there's a legendary story about that, which I don't know how much time you have, but the show Countdown. All the time in, you have. Countdown um, in the, uh, there's a guy called Molly Meldrum. You aware of that guy? Yeah. Well, you know, he had the show Countdown, which is now like a simpler top of the pops. And uh, I, this story has been recounted so many times, but it's, the, the single there was Ex-Offender back to a song called In the Flesh, which is kind of like a 50s doo-wop ballad. And so that show was really, uh, they were like in the forefront of like using video. I remember I was there one time and they showed like uh, the God Save the Queen video when no one would be showing that. They're like, he's like, but there's actually, if you're a Springsteen fan, he, on this last, not maybe two years ago, Molly Meldrum went to Bruce's house and interviewed him in depth. And uh, it was a special on TV in Australia and you can see that Bruce really uh, has an empathy with, with Molly as well, but it's a really, really
0: great piece. Because he doesn't do a lot of interviews, does he, Bruce? And he seems like no. quite a shy, yeah. reserved. Well,
3: I mean, for, for years he did nothing at all, ever. He didn't, didn't do video, he didn't do, it was just, I take 10 years to make a record. So, but anyway, so with, with Molly, he goes, okay, we have this new group from New York, and uh, this is their first single, Ex-Offender. Now we did three videos in a day Photographer called Bob Gruen, very famous photographer, took John Lennon's uh, green card photo. took that famous picture of Lennon in the New York City t shirt in front of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, he was the uh, cameraman, and a guy called Richard Robinson, who is the, uh, the husband of a journalist called Lisa Robinson, who used to have the magazine Rock Scene, influential influential uh, magazine in the States that was very uh, photo oriented. Lots of pictures of like the New York Dolls and things like that. So we do three videos in one day, basically us jumping around in front of the camera, three different songs In the Sun, uh, Ex Offender, which was the, was the A and B sides of the B and A, anyway, of the States, and then we did In the Flesh. So Molly Meldrum goes, Okay, here's Blondie's new group, gorgeous. He probably said, This is this great looking woman, or, you know, Blondie, you know. And he said, Ex Offender. And then he they go, comes on, of course I wasn't there, but it's the In the Flesh song, which is a really, really nice song. Debbie wrote the lyrics. It's about David Johansson from New York Dolls, I think. And it's a really great romantic sexy song. Next thing you know, that song's number one in Australia. So, um,
0: It's a hit in its own right. It's down. a
3: hit in Australia. Down down there for that's that where we went our, one of our we went on tour for six months around the world, right? Uh, and so but so we get to Australia, and they're thinking, no, oh, this is like pop band, and, but then we're like just out of our minds, high and drunk and playing, you know, thinking we're coming from the streets of New York. That's another story. But my point is, with Chris, I was like, we're going to Australia, we should play that song. Uh, and like I said, no, nobody cares. That's all. We don't want that. Get there. They go on morning. I kind of like doing stuff like this, and the thing I just did for six, and And I did a great thing, this Triple R station, a public radio station in in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. I did a a thing that night with them. I I don't really think rock and roll takes place before, you know. What time is it now? We're a little early. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but they tend to do stuff a lot earlier. I mean, I get up early, but. So first thing they're on morning television and then I turn on the TV and they're on and the first thing the guy says well back in 1977 he my, you know that story I just recounted and they're just showing the clip of him announcing it which I had never seen before and like you know it's like oh look how that's so how's crazy he introduced it as the ex-offender and they played it in the flesh and now it was number one what did you think about that and this is like you know Australia loves that song I go Chris I saw you on the, the show, I go, the fucking song, man. <laughs> so, of course, we start doing it, and people are going wild. But that's really a good example of... Chris Debbie was, like, kind of up for it, but Chris was... He kind of has this final say on a lot of things that take a little more time to shift. The other thing that was crazy, because we toured with Cindy Lauper down there. So, SIR Studios in New York, uh, Studio Instrument Rentals, back in the day, they used to say, it stood for Sorry I rented." Because that's how it started. I don't know if you probably if you heard of SIR? No, no. Yeah, they, you know they have a big location in Los Angeles. They used to have the one in Nashville. They had actually the brother of uh, Dean Torrance, like Jan and Dean. Yeah, yeah. Started it. It was a cartage company, rental company that a bunch of potheads started in the early '70s. if people needed an amp, and then all of a sudden they're rent, renting amps to Ry Cooter, David Lindley, and to the Beach Boys, and one thing leads to another, and they have a giant business that's been endured wow. for like I think they're having like I think they're having the fiftieth anniversary actually. So um where was I going with this now? now <laughs> I'm spacing out.
0: I love them. it. Ramble chats.
3: No now I'm spacing out about that about the SIR thing. Oh okay. So there's a bunch of studios there. Like I mean like anybody you could ever think of has rehearsed in this place. Whether it be the Who or Springsteen. On and on. I'm a. I remember Carly Simon was doing a, a launch there, and they have like a big, big sound stage. Actually, they, there's a E to the Beat, the album. We did a video of every song. A lot of them, the live performance ones, were filmed at SIR. Right. Went on the radio in the morning, saying we're doing these videos. We need an audience. They had a line around the block, blah blah blah. So I remember one time, we so after we were rehearsing there, we went into this Carly Simon thing, and James Taylor's there. And we go in there, and my friend Frank Infante he had a pair of a blue suede brothel creepers on. So James Taylor goes up to him and goes, Can I step on your blue suede shoes? <laughs> <I guess. laughs> it was kind of funny. <laughs> but he said it in a kind of a, like, he was trying to be like punk rock, James Taylor, you know. So anyway, we're at S.I.R. and it's Cindy Lauper. And so, uh, so we're out in like the common area having coffee. And she comes up to me. She goes, i we going to do a song together in Australia. Right, you know. I go, yeah, you want to do that? He goes, she goes, I want to do, do one of your songs. Well, what can we do? So I go, I go, I go, go. come now, we'll go and talk to Chris, because two of them were in the studio, I was outside. So we go in, I go, why don't we do a girl group song? She goes, what do you mean by that? Who doesn't know what a girl group song, I don't know why she said that. I go, well, I like Shangri-Las, or we could Run do X Be My Crystals, Baby. Or we could yeah. do... Then she starts singing The Knee, The Knee. And I go, well, that's perfect, yeah, because that is like a girl group song, and harmonies, then all of a sudden, you know, Chris will go, well, why don't we do, like, a Jimmy Cliff song? Or why don't we do... And then she's going, Marvin Gaye. And it goes on and on and on. I'm like, guys, let's just do fucking...
0: Play to our strengths. This,
3: this is more like an example of Chris. So one thing leads to another. Of course, we never did the song, any of those songs. We are in rehearsal in New York. We could have rehearsed and did it. But n- nobody could decide.
0: She you couldn't you know? agree.
3: And that's, you know, it takes a while sometimes. And I... That's an example of me going, yeah, put the head... I'm not, I'm not deciding, I'm like, you come here, you, you come here, Chris, you talk to her, decide what song we can do, but I think it's a good idea. In the end, uh, Debbie wound up singing one of Cindy's songs with her, and Cindy sang Fun, the song Fun, maybe because the girls want to have fun, she responded to the Blondie song Fun that's on Pollinator. But we never, I thought it would have been brilliant if we did like a Shangri-La song or something, or Ronette's song.
0: Is that part of the push and the pull that you learn over years of being in one group for an extended period of time? You know, it's it's again, it's kind of a cliched and overused phrase, but it is like a, it's a marriage. And then you've got like almost a marriage within it anyway. Yeah. And then.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a very uh, interesting dynamic.
0: And. Uh, I... But what was really nice in that interaction just then when Chris sat down with you outside and you were just going through that book and looking at photos is. oh we're friends you can see instantly i mean you know i'm around bands a lot and i can tell when musicians don't like each other and when they do it's quite obvious isn't it
3: yeah no we respect each other and obviously there's it's only like i guess getting back to you know i've I've basically been there from the beginning for whatever reason and uh, no we're friends no question about that we're business partners you know and that stuff was set up a long time ago and to, to my satisfaction, so I don't have a problem with that.
0: Because that's where a lot of the root of trouble comes well, from, right? Well, is the though. drummers
3: always quit because they're not getting a piece of the action. I always tell young drummers, I mean, you know, I mean, it's unfair. I mean, I laid this out a long time ago. It's say we both invest in a company. You put a dollar in and I put a dollar in. Company's successful. Next thing you know, that dollar's worth $10. But we both put in a dollar, but you're gonna get the $10 and I'm gonna get 50 cents. Wait a minute, we both invested the same amount of money. How does that work? But that's really the dynamic of a band. And that's like when bands start up, you know, the, obviously the songwriting, if you see like the kids are right, that Keith's like when they're doing that interview with, uh, uh, you know, when they're all sitting around, Keith takes his socks off.
0: It's Russell seen that. Hardy. Right. I looked that up.
3: You know, they they were asking about how's it going, and then like Keith's like, well, you know, Pete gets a little bit on the side, you know. The I mean, that's ongoing. I mean, I always point to two bands that really stood the test of time. One broke up or stopped performing on their own volition. The other one's still going, R.E.M. and U2. It's common knowledge that everything is shared equally. And... Uh,
0: How come, do you know REM at all? Do you know why they did Cool Time? Did they just feel like they'd set out to, you know, they'd done what they set out to do and they'd achieved it and made their statement and wanted to leave a legacy intact?
3: I think Michael probably had a lot to do with it. And because I'm friends with Peter and and Mike Mills and they're they're always out playing, I have a band called The Split Squad, one of my side projects, and we toured with, they have a band called The Baseball Project, or Mike Mills does with uh, Steve Wynn from uh, Dream Syndicate. And they're always playing, and now and then Peter is on tour with my friend Alice Alice Escovedo. If you know uh, Alejandro Escovito. no, he has some brilliant records. He used to be in a band called the Nuns. Right, the first time we played in San Francisco, a band called the Avengers and a band called the Nuns were our opening bands. The Avengers opened for the Pistols at Winterland. I think maybe the Nuns might have as well. Anyway, Alejandro Escovedo. Fast forward, his he's part of the Escovedo family, which. There was a guy called uh, Coke Escovito, who was a percussionist in Santana. There's a woman called Sheila E. That's his uh, cousin. And his brother had a band called uh, The Zeros. Uh, there's a guy called Elvez. It's a Mexican Elvis. Amazing. He was the lead singer in The Zeros. But they're all connected. And uh, Peter Buck right now is on tour with Alejandro. He just produced Alejandro's newest record. Alejandro Escovedo he's brilliant and
0: uh so and michael's so just like not ready to really doing music anymore is yeah
3: he? i don't think michael's I'll, i think michael is into art is living into living in new york city into the whole uh, uh culture of new york and the uh the underbelly and uh you know the uh, the gay scene in new york and all that and uh i think he's very probably very happy I've met Michael a few times, but I, I, I'm friends with Mike. Mike Mills and Peter Buck are just like, they're like, you know, these musician guys, they, they love music. I mean, to me, that's the whole thing. I don't care if you're, whether you're Clive Davis or Bob Dylan, you know, there's a, basically started, or whoever, you started out, you were a big fan of music. And there's a common ground there, because when I meet people like that, just talk about music, it's fine. they everybody, we're big music fans. It's not a, it's not like a, you know, not like a coincidence that these people are so successful or that they're they loved music seymour stein i just just i mentioned that already i think i went to 75th birthday party he loves music
0: still right and he's still going to shows yeah, and partying he's on his way and... to
3: um, china and india to look for bands or to look for artists
0: uh, I had uh, Laurie Jane Grace from the band Against Me on the podcast oh, and she was talking about how Seymour signed them for a couple mm-hmm. of those two albums I think they did with Sire. Right. And that he'd just be at the shows like, you know, side of stage, beer in hand, just, you know, yeah. still loving it, still excited by music, still out there chasing the acts.
3: Well, if you can realize that fact that you've made an amazing living from doing it as well as you love it. I mean, I mean, any—I don't care, whatever job, you know. If you enjoy your job and you're making a living by it, basically you have life figured out to a certain extent. And I think, uh, yeah, for anyone to kind of negate the fact that you can be a, make a living being any kind of artist it's like so difficult, and uh, it's difficult in as much as the chances of it happening is very diff- is very small i mean it's you know i don't think it's difficult like being a brain surgeon no
0: or being a coal miner or yeah it's it's difficult to have the success you have to be emotionally resilient don't you
3: well you have to be able to deal with rejection for sure whether you're a painter or an actor or well,
0: right? even with this thing i had three radio gigs prior to this and the stations that i was working for kept coming off the air because they right. were just failing right. so i was like well i'm gonna set up shop on my own and and yeah. go independent. And that's what I've done. And got a sponsor and it's going really well, but it's taken a while yeah. to, you know, to get there. And, that's and I think what I've always not had in my life that I would love to is actually being in a band and having that gang sort of brotherhood or sisterhood, whatever it is, but having other people in the frontline trenches with you. Yeah. I mean, I mean... Because that counts for a lot, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, the Beatles would always... George Harris in particular, I think, would always say, well, we were the only ones who really know what happened, just the four of us. We were the ones in the car together. We were the ones on stage together. We were the ones, you know, we know what went on. No one else knows. And there's that connection and that brotherhood because of it. And uh, so what's your uh, main instrument? I don't play. Oh, I don't no, play. No, no, I'm just... So you're really wishful thinking. M- yeah, right? yeah, yeah.
0: My yeah. passion is just interviewing and... Well, you'll have a, team, and-
3: have a team, you know, as things progress, maybe you'll come up with a team for your for the podcast. Producer you, know? you need a sidekick. Yeah. yeah. I'm available. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: in uh, 19, 19... Why do I keep saying 19?
0: It's <laughs> stuck in the <laughs> 90s. I'm
3: available in like 2020.
0: <laughs> um, just kind of as we approach the end of the conversation, right. I wonder if you could maybe reflect on why it was or what the qualities about New York City meant that at that place and that time so much great and not just rock music there was disco and hip-hop I mean basically the three cultural revolutions that still define many levels of society and art and culture Mm -hmm. to this day from disco and techno music through to rap is obviously you know probably the biggest style of music outside of maybe country in the US and huge over here with grime the UK equivalent of it and 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 punk obviously spawned indie, and all the bands that are now making music on their own in their bedroom, that all stems from that DIY kind of ethos as well. And it all came from this one city in like a two-year window.
3: Right, the DIY aspect for sure. I mean, I think Blondie has been very influential in the do-it-yourself aspect of it. I mean, even a band like R.E.M. may not sound like Blondie, but I think we influenced them as far as them doing whatever they wanted to do artistically and not really have to think about commercial success and then have it just come their way because they did what they really felt, and which is what we did. And, uh, you know, like, pop culture's in a really strange place now because I don't really know how many positive role models there are in pop culture, and I don't really know where the influences are on the, for the next generation of people to do something really interesting. I think in New York we had the history musically for, for us for instance of like the Velvet Underground and the New York Dolls and the, the glam rock scene that existed and uh, the whole sort of cultural uh, aspect of uh, Andy Warhol and uh, just the arts in general and the accept- being accepted as, uh, I don't want to say normal or commonplace, accepted as being legitimate a force you know something I mean we all need the arts you know Donald Trump or whatever that people taking them taking that off you know the, the radar as far as the importance of it there's no music education in most public schools in the states and things like that um, I think New York at the time well one thing you know the economics of it was it was it was rather inexpensive to live my first apartment was hundred and twenty dollars a month and uh, was in like the West Village the loft we had where we rehearsed on the Bowery wasn't very much money and it really wasn't that difficult to come up with the money in order to sustain us any kind of existence. I mean we didn't eat a lot and you know all that kind of stuff but that doesn't exist anymore for starters. Uh, The points of reference were more uh, underground like I was saying like the New York Dolls never had any real success Although, to me, like I said, there were gods. Like to see them on the, actually on the street, it was like unbelievable to actually see them in the flesh.
0: Um, well, even them, over here, they shaked it up with their appearance yeah. on the Grey Whistle Test that right. obviously inspired the Sex Pistols, The Clash, all those bands. They saw that and were like, what I, is this?
3: I know. Bob Harris, I was with him in Liverpool <laughs> this year. What do you call the mock rock? Yeah. He's a very nice man, Bob Harris.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, so there was that, the Velvet Underground, the whole sort of thing that was not. Uh, you know, it was a very small group of people that were generating this uh, artistic revolution in a way. And then the, at CBGB, as far as what was going on, you had television, you had Patti Smith, you had the Ramones, you had uh, Johnny Thunders, the Heartbreakers, you had Talking Heads. Mink DeVille were a really cool band. You had lots of other bands. For us, we were kind of like feeding off of all of that and kind of a simple, I mean, we used to do like Venus. I think Debbie probably still has the handwritten lyrics of Venus from Tom Berlin. That was uh, impacting on uh, the pop culture, you know, and things were building that way. And then, of course, I always say like, like disco and dance music, I and mean, that was just as subversive, if not more subversive than punk rock. I mean, that stuff was taking place in like underground, like gay clubs, and yeah. it was really talking about alternative lifestyle,
0: true counterculture. Yeah. You
3: know, and like Saturday Night Fever is one of my favorite movies. I think that's almost like a punk rock movie in a way.
0: And uh, amen. You know, it's and- a shame that there was that divide, wasn't there? Thrust in on the yeah when re- you look discos. back
3: on it it's like <laughs> and so burning silly.
0: records like why would you ever do that you know yeah. burn something that someone's created and put heart into i mean the real dance music of the
3: era well, the place place called club 82 where I, my, I had a band called sweet revenge but it was my glam rock band and debbie and chris had a band of stilettos and wayne county and electric chairs would play there then oh they were called queen elizabeth and the neon boys <clears> which was the band prior to television that tom berlaine had it was a gay dance club, essentially. So, other than the bands once a week being on stage, whether it be the Dolls or Wayne County or whoever, all the music was uh, the dance music of the 70s, like Shame, 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 uh, you know, the, the Giorgio Moroda stuff. Uh,
0: Donna uh, Summer and.
3: Yeah. Is uh, that out yet? I mean, uh, Casey, I mean, the, the, the organic dance music is great. That's why Saturday Night Fever soundtrack is one of my favorite albums. It's great playing, you know. <clears throat> So, um, but yeah, as far as being subversive, yeah, that was all happening. And then the whole thing in the South Bronx where Chris befriended a couple of people, one of whom was like Jean-Michel Basquiat and uh, a couple of the early rapper people and all. And then they, they, Chris and Debbie went up to the South Bronx and went to a, a rap battle. And uh, the whole thing about Rapture, I think, was really, really uh, forward thinking
0: I saw a documentary where I think it was RZA or JZA from the Wu-Tang Clan said that their introduction to hip-hop was Rapture.
3: I know, all these like black, all guys <laughs> were like little black kids and the first rap song they heard was Blondie. It's pretty phenomenal. The, the interesting thing about Rapture, though, is it's a song. It's not a rap, it's a song. Debbie wrote a melody yeah. and it's a song that incorporates a rap, which it took rap a long time to get to that point. People always talk about like, you know, Run DMC, Walk This Way with a rap or something like uh, who did like every breath you take with a rap? Was it like P. Diddy or something?
0: Yeah, Puff Daddy as he was then called, I think.
3: Right, <laughs> whoever it is. But, but the whole object of that was we need a melody and then we're going to rap. Yeah. And that's what we did. I mean, Debbie's singing a song and then it goes into a rap. So it's not really a rap song. It's kind of like a song that has like a, a dialogue in it. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really the way of whatever. And it was so funny because I would always have like my friends around after, back in the day after we we do a record. i would like, hey, you know, come over, whatever. You know, I'd be hanging out with my friends. Like, hey, here's what we just did. You know, when I remember when I put that on and when Rapture came, they were like, what the fuck is this? You know, like they were like appalled really because it was such well such an alternative uh,
0: type well, it wasn't of music. White guitar music, was it?
3: No, but the interesting thing is Frank Infante plays an amazing guitar solo on Rapture way before like Beat It and things like that as far as incorporating hard rock with R&B or whatever you want to call it. So I guess all this stuff that we did kind of uh, seeped into uh, us still being here now because of it. At the time it was just, like I said with Heart of Glass, it was just a song and let's put a drum machine on it and let's have the synthesizer. and Let's play the beat from Saturday Night Fever, and you know, it's funny. But um, yeah, no, it's good to be in London though. I mean, I spent a lot of time here over the years, you know, for sure, and we always reflected on like, you know, Hendrix having a success here before, and then with the Strokes, I think we're probably the last ones. So uh, yeah, it's been good. I'm really looking forward to the Roundhouse gig. It sold out like really quickly and uh, we're functioning on just uh, a positive energy right now within the band with the new album and having just played in Australia, so we're not like really uptight about like, oh, we need to like really make everything perfect. There's definitely a looseness that's been going on. Uh, You know, a lot of the songs are to track, I mean, tracks are included or I'm playing to a click track, but it's about 50-50, so it's interesting. So some of the songs are very free-form, anything could happen, and then some songs are more,
0: you know, programmed. So it's a good mix. And, uh, and a good time to be in the band, right? Yeah, it's good. Everything's cool and it's the future cool. looks bright.
3: Yeah, you know, um, it's something that you don't want to take for granted, that's for sure.